Hello, Christ Community family, Craig here. This sermon was probably the most difficult sermon I've ever preached, but I'd also say it was one of the most important I've ever preached. I wanted to give you a heads up that the first five minutes or so of the audio got chopped off, but I've gone back and re-recorded that missing piece. It does make for a bit of a clunky start, but I hope you'll keep listening because God really spoke to us all through his word. Today, we dive back into the life of David. From the very beginning of the life of David to now, God himself has been the main character. God chose David. God won the victory for David over Goliath. God preserved David from Saul. God gave David victory and favor wherever he went. God established David's kingdom and built him a house. And today's passage is no different. God is at work accomplishing his purposes. But now, God's purposes... God is bringing judgment on David. God's doing that because of David's sin toward Bathsheba. Two weeks ago, Scott walked us through David's horrible failure, using his power as king to force himself on Bathsheba, and then in a failed pregnancy cover-up, murder her husband Uriah. Now, David's family is about to unravel and descend into stomach-churning, heart-wrenching sin. I remember just before... I left to go to China back in 2007. I worked for a few months at a Starbucks. I worked with a a woman I'll call Holly. That's not her real name. Holly was not a Christian, but quickly warmed to me and the small group of Christian brothers and sisters who all took time to listen to her and love her. And I will never forget the day when cleaning up behind the counter after the morning rush had died down, she started to pour out to me her experience of being raped. The hurt the shame, the fear, the pain. She just stood there in front of me. And then in in so many words, she said, what does your Jesus have to say about this? What does he think of someone like me? Today, we're going to enter into the pain of a woman violated just like Holly was. We're going to observe the evil of it. We'll see the other people involved in their sin. And we will answer Holly's question. What does Jesus have to say to such things, to people like her? I realize this might feel uncomfortable to hear about topics like these, but let me remind you, this is the word of God speaking to us today. And I want us to recognize as a faith family that this type of sin is not far away. It's near. It is here, here in this room. And Jesus is a physician able to heal all kinds of wounds, and he's especially good at binding up broken hearts. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we need you. We need you to speak to us today, but Lord, we need your redeeming love today. Come and give us tender hearts. Come and heal us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, We're going to take the story one person at a time. Rather than uh, go through it bit by bit, we're going to look at a person and how they fit into this story. But here, here's what I really hope you see today. This is the big picture, the big takeaway. It's that David and his family are full of sin. So are ours, and we all need Jesus. And so we begin with the lust of Amnon. The lust of Amnon. Amnon, he has a special place. He's the son of King David. 
and the firstborn, which means he's the presumptive king. Somewhere along the line, Amnon came into contact with his half-sister Tamar. It's a half-sister because they had the same dad, David, but a different mom. Just as an aside, I want to I make this point that just because the Bible doesn't say anything about the fact that David had multiple wives here, it doesn't imply that that was okay. David would have known God's law. And God's law in Deuteronomy explicitly stated to kings, do not take many wives. But David took many wives. And of course, with that comes a whole lot of trouble. Two kids, same dad, different mom. And then the text says, verse 2, after a time, Amnon loved her. We don't know how the attraction happened or what the basis of the attraction is, but we do know that this is not love. This is lust. He wants her physically, but cares nothing for anything else. He wants something he should not want. That, that's what lust is. It's contrary to God's law, to God's design. He wants his sister. And the unchecked desire disorders his thoughts, feelings, and eventually his actions. Now look, everyone in this room struggles with lust. Everyone who's listening right now struggles with lust, which is wanting something we should not want, resulting in disordered thoughts, feelings, and actions. We often associate that word with sexual sin, and, and rightly so, as it is in this case. But lust is far broader. We can lust after a man or a woman. We can lust after fame. We can lust after job status for personal gain. But let's just pause and consider what's at stake. Well, here's, at, here's what's at stake if we give way to lustful desires. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So what's at stake Going to hell is at stake. I'm not here to heap condemnation on you, but I am here to firmly warn you. Disordered desire leads to death, eternal death. Adam and Eve's desire for the fruit led to death. David's desire for Bathsheba led to death. And Amnon's desire results in so much death. I have seen lust personally take down marriages, rob people of joy, and crush souls. I have seen it take down missionaries from the mission field, destroy their entire family. No one is above this. No one. How will it be any different for you? It will result in eternal death. Eternal separation from the presence of God. Please hear me. Please hear God on this. But let me offer you some brief scripture-guided help today in your fight against lust. First, get in the light. Get in the light. Are you honest about your sin with somebody else? Are you hiding this sin or do you think you're hiding this sin, hoping that no one will ever know? Bring it into the light. 
Tell a brother or a sister. Fight the sin together. Set a weekly or a bi-weekly accountability time, a time to pray together, to seek God together, to confess sin to one another. You're fighting for your life. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. That's the first one, get in the light. And the second one is just a resource I want to point you to. I found it on desiringgod.org. I would encourage you to go there later on today. If you go to Desiring God and you type in the word anthem, it's a wonderful, practical tool that will give you some great advice on fighting against lust. I want to walk through it with you right now. We don't have time today. I'm going to post it on Realm later on today, though, and you can find it there. But in the midst of this fight against lust, Jesus has something to say. As I wrote this, I tried to envision in my head what Jesus would say if he was sitting down across from these people. What if, what if Amnon was right there with Jesus? What would he say to him? And of course, we can put ourselves where Amnon is. We're the people with the lust. What would he say? The cross and the resurrection is finished. What's Jesus going to say to him? Ultimately, what is he saying to you in your battle with lust? Jesus would say something like, come to the cross. Your sin put me there. I died, not merely physically. I was separated from my father because of your lust, because of you, because of you looking at porn, because of you coveting your neighbor's wife. I went there for you. I bore your sin in my body there. And I did it because I love you. Your sin is paid for. So stop beating yourself up. Instead, come and follow me. In my presence, there is fullness of joy. He said this, Jesus said this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go too much into the cousin, Jonadab, and his crafty wisdom. But it's those crafty smarts that enable Amnon to fulfill what he wanted to get done. And that's what we're going to look at next, the desolation of Tamar. Amnon's lust-fueled passion drives him to lure his sister Tamar into his bedroom. And I'm not going to go into detail about the heart-wrenching tragedy that unfolds, but Amnon rapes her, his sister. The deed is at the literary heart of the story. It's intentionally put there because the author wants us to do what Amnon did not. He wants us to listen to Tamar. He wants us to see her and to feel the gravity of this despicable act. Amnon's supposed love then turns to hate. That's what it says in verse 15. After he commits the deed, he says, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And then he says, it's just two words in Hebrew. It's like this. He says, up, out, get up, get out of here. Eventually, he calls for a servant and says, get this thing out of my presence. 
and lock the door behind her. Your Bible says this woman, woman isn't there. The implication is he's calling her a piece of trash. She takes ashes and puts them on her head. She takes her special robe. If you look at the footnote in your Bible, it'll refer you back to Joseph in Genesis, his robe of many colors. This was an, a garment of honor. It was given to the king's daughter. She was beloved. and She tears it in shame. She puts her hand on her head and she runs away, weeping. Absalom, Tamar's brother, finds her and says this, Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. And this is something that sadly so often happens. Be quiet. Let's just not talk about that. We don't talk about such things around here. Don't let this affect you. But her life was a desolation. That's what it says, verse 20. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. This whole thing makes me so angry. And I honestly hope that you're getting angry too. It's here to make us angry. This ought not be so. How can Amnon do this? How dare he? How can he be so cruel? I want justice. It makes me so angry, and it makes me so sad. My heart breaks for her. She was robbed. She was robbed of her dignity, her purity, and her honor. She was used, and then she was thrown aside. And in the culture of that time, her life was effectively laid waste. It was a desolation. Some of you know how Tamar feels because it's happened to you. And I want you to know that I am so sorry. And I am so angry at the person that did that to you. And as much as I want to give you hope by finding that person and ending their life, that's not the greatest hope. The greatest hope, the hope that Tamar needs and the hope that you need today is found in Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, just like you were. He knows what you feel. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, just like you were. He feels your pain. Men hide their faces from him. He, they were ashamed of him, just like you feel shame. He knows what you feel. He knows shame. His dignity and honor were stripped from him as they hung him naked on a cross to die. His purity was laid waste. He became a desolation when he bore our sin. So hear me on this. If you have been raped, abused, violated, pushed around, trampled on, overlooked, despised, you have a savior who knows. You have a savior who cares. 
you have a Savior who did something about it. One day, Jesus walked into a synagogue, a place where Jews worship Jesus, worship God, sorry, not yet. He read from a scroll, the book of Isaiah, and he read this passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to comfort all who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And then Luke's gospel records this. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus fulfilled that. We don't know where Tamar is now. But if she's with Jesus, I would love to have been there when she saw him face to face for the first time. He would have looked her in the eye with love. And he would have said, I am the true anointed one, the Messiah. I've been anointed by the Spirit of God. And I have been brought to declare good news to you, Tamar. I have good news. I will comfort you. The ashes on your head are now a beautiful crown. You're no longer covered in shame and sorrow. Now you're covered with the oil of gladness. Your garment, that special garment given to the virgin daughters of the king that you tore in shame, it's now replaced with a garment of praise. I want you. I love you. And you're safely home with me now and forever. But what about her attacker? What about Amnon? Well, that's where Absalom comes in. And now we're going to look at the hatred of Absalom. Absalom has a plan for Amnon. For Amnon. This plan was fed by a long, patient two years of a steady stream of hate. This is verse 22. Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom hated Amnon. Lust drove Amnon. Hate drove Absalom to do what happened next. Sharing the sheep at that time was apparently a cause for celebration. With a trick of his own, Absalom convinces David to let Amnon and all of the king's sons to gather together away from Jerusalem for a party. Let's shear the, let's shear the sheep and slaughter my brother. It goes completely according to plan. This is verses 23 through 29. We're not going to read them all. This is basically what happens. They gather together far away from Jerusalem. And they get Amnon drunk making his murder even easier. Amnon is ambushed and killed. The king's sons flee. David is crushed. 
one son murdering another son. Meanwhile, Absalom runs away. What a mess. Here's the thing. Isn't there something in you that feels happy about what Absalom did? He took action. At least somebody is willing to stand up for Tamar, to right this wrong, to bring justice. Absalom may have had the right motive, but he used the wrong methods. Rather than seeking justice God's way, by advocating for Tamar, by taking her voice before her father, by giving her a voice, he sought justice through hate. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to find out just how far Absalom hate is going to take him, and it's bad. Friends, let me urge you with soberness here. If you see or experience injustice, the solution is not to nurse a bitter hatred. Hating someone like Absalom hated Amnon, cold and cool and calculated, feels so powerful. It feels like you're in control. You're going to get your way. You're going to win. It's in your hands. But it isn't powerful. It's a prison. It's a prison of the soul that ends in hell. Again, the words of Jesus from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said from those, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Do not seek justice through hate. As Christians, we seek justice. We seek justice. But we do it through love. We love the Tamars of this world, the voiceless, the powerless, the helpless. And we love them by responding to them. We don't respond like Absalom did by silencing his sister. Be quiet. Don't say anything. Don't, don't talk about that. We hear them. We show compassion to them. And we share their story to bring justice on their behalf. We welcome children from broken homes into our homes. We rescue the unborn who have no voice from having their lives ended in the womb. We go to the oppressed. We go to the forgotten. We go to the marginalized. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus who came to serve us in the same way. That's why we do it. Because loving the voiceless, the powerless, the powerless and the helpless is near to the heart of our great God. That's what Jesus did for us. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what he did when we were weak. What would Jesus say to Absalom? What would he say to the person nursing a bitter hatred over injustice? Well, he would remind them, he would remind us that the greatest injustice the world has ever known is the injustice of rejecting the creator of the world who came to rescue them from sin. This is from John 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming 
into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Their creator, rejected by his creation. We all, Absalom, me, you, we have all done this. Justice is the wrath of God for my sin. But Jesus heard our cries, loved us, and did something about it. He took action. He laid down his life for us, empowering us to do the same for others, motivated not by hate, but by his great love for us. And finally, the passivity of David. David's silence in this story is deafening, isn't it? Don't you just want to, like, as I read this story, I just wanted to scream at David, do something. What are you doing? These are your kids. This is your daughter. Where is he? The first time we encounter him, we read about him hearing of Amnon's deed. When David, King David heard of these things in verse 21, we, he was very angry. We can picture him in our minds, raving mad, yelling about his wayward son to anyone who was in earshot. He's such a fool. How could he do such a thing? Of course, the whole time that David is raging, his own conscience is pricking him like father, like son. In just the previous chapter, we learn that David took Bathsheba for himself. So what does David do? Does he swiftly move to protect his precious daughter? No. He passively waits as Absalom takes her in. This is just an aside. All of us here. This is for all of us. But this word is especially for the men in the room. Show compassion to those who are hurt. Show compassion to those who are hurting. David did not show compassion for his daughter. Does he sorrowfully but righteously take up the sword of justice to execute righteous judgment in his role as king on his son for his truly evil and sinful act? No, no. The Bible records no, no action from David toward Amnon at all. Again, this is for all of us, but especially for the men. Stand up for those who have little or no voice. Stand for those who cannot defend themselves, for women, for young, for the unborn. Really, the only thing that we see David do is emote. He's a great big ball of emotion. He's raging angry. And then once again, he's down face on the floor like he was after he committed his sin with Bathsheba. And then he's weeping bitterly with his servants, and finally, he's comforted, comforted, wishing that Absalom would just come home. But he doesn't do anything. We've said this before, and this won't be the last time that you hear this. But to assume that the Bible is chock full of all these great people, these heroes that we just want to emulate with our lives, is a total misconception of what the Bible is about. The Bible's main actor, the main doer, 
The only hero is God himself. He's doing something here. He's doing exactly what he told David would happen when he took Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Nathan the prophet was speaking to David and he said this in chapter 12. He said, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up against you, David. I will raise up evil against you, David, out of your own house. God accomplishes his purposes. So what does that say about God? What is God saying to David? He will do what he says. And we often don't do what we say we will do or what we ought to do. David didn't. But God sent Jesus for people like David and for people like us to accomplish his purposes to accomplish for us what we never could, which is be perfect. Perfectly do everything God required. And instead of keeping that perfection for himself, he gave it to us and took our sinful imperfection on himself at the cross, dying the death we deserved. By faith in Jesus, He got our sin, and we got his perfection. That's what he did for us. He did it. He always accomplishes his purposes. So what do we say in conclusion to a story like this? This was really hard to know how to land this plane. Let's go back to that Holly question from the very beginning. What does Jesus say to someone like her? What does Jesus think of her? Remember this from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of God is upon me. This is Jesus talking. The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort those who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Holly, that's what Jesus has done for you. And that's what he thinks of you. And what if you're more like Absalom? or Amnon, or David, we all are. For all of us, whether we're Tamar or any of those men, the cross of Jesus Christ rights the wrongs we have done and the wrongs that were done to us. He is a beautiful Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the true son of David whom we all need and we need you. Thank you that you have come to take care of the wrongs that we have done and to right all of the wrongs done to us. In Jesus' name, amen.